0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: With climate, the worst-case scenario is not a risk anyone can accept. I think you know that. Disaster, some say, is not unlikely, and it may not even be far away. We may already be headed to a hothouse world, and if so, perhaps all we can hope is to slow down that wrenching change. Those are the kind of dark considerations of some very highly regarded scientists. In November, just days before the Madrid COP25 climate conference, this group published a comment in the top journal Nature. It is titled, Climate Tipping Points, Too Risky to Bet Against. From the University of Exeter, UK, we have reached the lead author, Professor Timothy M. Lenton, Director of the Global Systems Institute. Tim Lenton, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock.
0: Thank you for having me. So
1: we call the New Age the Anthropocene, but is that a new steady state where we will all be comfortable, or is it a whirlwind of change?
0: I think the Anthropocene is best described as the latter, more, uh, a time of, at the moment, uh, continual change, and indeed uh, perhaps a whirlwind of change. It's certainly not a stable state. Uh, we're clearly in a transition at the moment. Uh, I guess the question is, what what to?
1: <laughs> well, to get a grip on this huge subject, I broke your concerns down into three major categories. I want to run them by you and see if we can talk about these. And so they are, number one, tipping points in unique systems, like, say, the Amazon. And number two, long-distant impacts in a chain of events following a tipping point. And then three, the global cascade, a, a domino effect of tipping points Interacting. Does that sound like a, a reasonable framework for our chat?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So, your comment in Nature begins with tipping points, but it doesn't end there. But to be sure we're all on board here, Tim Lenton, how do you describe a tipping point?
0: Well, I like to use the common example of a, an ordinary chair to explain to people that the world is full of systems that have different stable states and in the case of the chair, chair upright is a stable state but chair lying on its back is also a stable state and if you're leaning back on the chair you get to a point where a little bit of a nudge one way or the other is going to determine whether you're back upright or lying flat on your back and that's the kind of tipping point in the simple case of a chair. There are lots of parts of the Earth's climate system that are a whole lot more complex than chairs, but can also exhibit different stable states and tipping points between them. So an example might be the Greenland ice sheet, where if you were to take it away under today's climate, it wouldn't regrow. And the thing that's allowing it to persist is that it's stuck three kilometers up in the air and the temperature's much colder up there. So that keeps the surface cold and enables the ice sheet to persist. But at some point, as you warm the ice sheet up and it starts to melt and the surface drops in altitude and that warms things up further, at some point that process that's self-amplifying becomes self-propelling and you reach a tipping point where you'd lose that ice sheet altogether. Mm-hmm. So that's one of several examples in the climate.
1: Yes, has the Amazon rainforest gone past a tipping point?
0: Let's hope not. I I think at some smaller scales we might say that the Amazon is uh, showing signs of getting tipped, especially in the drier southeast part of the Amazon, where it's not just that people are chopping the forest down, but the recent extreme drought summers that have hit the Amazon have led to a change in fire regimes so that, Sometimes we're seeing bits of the forest transition away, well, transition away from forest to something more like a savannah. For the bulk of the forest, it's, happily it's not tipped yet, but we know that the Amazon forest recycles its own rainfall, and that's the way in which it kind of sustains itself. But if you take out too many of the trees, especially in, in the wrong place, then you would, you would kind of shut off that water recycling system, and the re- and that could doom the rest of the forest on a larger scale.
1: Could whole regions go past a tipping point, but we don't know it yet, even in science, so we only see them in a rear-view mirror?
0: Well, this is a potential problem with ice sheets, and with any system that is naturally sluggish or slow. If you think about ice, it flows very, very slowly, and there's a huge bulk of ice both on Greenland, West Antarctica, and particularly East Antarctica. We think we see evidence in part of West Antarctica and a small part of East Antarctica that the ice sheets there are are being destabilized. They're undergoing an accelerating retreat of glaciers. But because that's quite a sluggish system, at the rate it's going at the moment, it will still take thousands of years happily for for it to unfold for the complete loss of something like the West Antarctic ice sheet. But this gets worse as the temperature goes up. So the more we warm the climate, the, the quicker things can unfold.
1: Your group, which I note includes my hero, Hans Schellenhuber, then proposes... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a great group, a lot from the Potsdam Institute and so on. They propose a, a long-distance impact in a chain of events following a tipping point. And I think the one that came clearest to me in your article it would be a change in the North Atlantic current. Could you talk to us about how something that happens in one part of the Earth could affect the whole globe, possibly?
0: Absolutely. The crucial thing here is that the Earth and its climate is a complex but interconnected system. So what we begin to see in in terms of accelerating change in the world is we see the Arctic warming up far faster than the global average, partly because the sea ice is melting, in exposing a darker ocean surface that's absorbing more heat. And that amplified warming in the Arctic is contributing to the melt of the Greenland ice sheet that's also accelerating. That's adding fresh water into the North Atlantic Ocean either side of Greenland. And those are exactly the regions where deep water forms. Water from the, goes right from the surface of the Atlantic Ocean to the very bottom. And that's a crucial part of propelling what we call the overturning circulation of the Atlantic, that includes massive surface currents of of the ocean transporting heat from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, and then across in the Gulf Stream, across the Atlantic Ocean. And that's weakening that circulation, partly because of extra fresh water coming in to the North Atlantic region. And we know from the Earth's climate past, the record of that, that when you weaken that circulation it it drags the whole band of rainfall around the tropics of the planet uh, a little bit southwards because there's less of this heat transport by the ocean and that in turn can disrupt monsoons in west africa in south america where the amazon is round the planet in india and when you weaken the uh, the heat transport from the south to the north you also leave more of the heat behind in the southern ocean and that can contribute to uh, the melting of the ice sheets around Antarctica. So it's in that kind of physical way through the transport of heat, moisture, and momentum that, that the oceans, the atmosphere couple couple the planet together.
1: Now is that what you mean by a global cascade? Because that sounds so risky, it's as final almost as a thermonuclear war if we get one tipping point causing other tipping points and, and it just goes out of control. Is that what you're discussing in the paper?
0: Well, we're raising the possibility that we that there can be, um, that the causal connections and interactions between what I call the tipping elements in the climate can be wired up in a way where one thing increases the likelihood of tipping another. And that does seem to be the kind of causality that I just described in the example I gave. It would require some special conditions for this to become a runaway process, like like tipping the proverbial dominoes. It needs the coupling to be quite strong for tipping one thing to force the tipping of the next. But it seems to be, we think, a legitimate concern and obviously something that we should assess carefully to get a proper handle on the amount of risk we're running with climate change. And we're particularly interested in this because we look in Earth's past and we see times when the planet was much hotter than today with unusual temperature gradient between the equator and the pole and so on. And models that we have to model today's climate, they really struggle to reproduce these past what we'd call hothouse Earth states. But we know they existed, so we have a suspicion that there are either some of these tipping cascades or some other very strong feedbacks in the climate that can propel the whole Earth to go into a hotter state. We've got to try and avoid that, if that's possible, to occur.
1: Definitely. I'd like to go back to your 2018 paper that you co-authored, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. Uh, Just a really groundbreaking shake-up paper. In figure two of that paper, it shows two possible futures for us. One is labeled Stabilized Earth, and the other is Hothouse Earth. It almost sounds in this new paper that we may have to give up on stabilized Earth, and, and our best hope is just to slow down our fall, uh, you know, drag it out as long as possible, heading towards hothouse Earth. Is that the way people are feeling these days?
0: Maybe one or two people are feeling it's that bleak. My personal view is we've still got a lot to play for, and there's still a chance we can create a stabilized Earth, but we might, at least in temperature terms, um, we ought, that ought to still be possible and should be something to aim for. What's unclear at the moment is whether we've made a commitment for a wet house, or a higher sea level, basically, because we, ha- we may have already tipped uh, the loss of some big ice sheets, even if it's unfolding slowly over thousands of years. So it might be possible to reverse that, because these are ice sheets that are melting slowly, we'd obviously have to keep things cool if we wanted to try and reverse it. So, yeah, where I'm at with it is we've got a chance to still to create a stabilised Earth, but we've got some, clearly, got some work to do to achieve that. We might still be in a situation where some of the sea level rise, albeit coming slowly, has got a certain inevitability about it.
1: Tim Lenton, you've studied drastic changes on this planet for a long time. You covered it in your 2011 book, Revolutions That Made the Earth. Ironically, the publisher of that, Oxford University Press, advertised that book as, quote, an antidote to the current string of depressing and apocalyptic books about climate change, <laughs> end quote. But your latest paper seems pretty apocalyptic, doesn't
0: it? Well, um, yeah, I feel... What can I say? As a scientist, you have to tell it like it is. And um, the more we're learning about uh, changes happening in the climate system, and we've learned an awful lot since I published that book in 2011, which I probably finished writing a year or two before that, so it's probably 10 years out of date. I mean, I'm afraid we've learned a lot of things that support the view that the risk of uh, tipping points in the climate is more immediate than we, we thought even a decade ago. I explain in revolutions that made the Earth, though, that that the Earth has undergone these tumultuous changes before, and of course the biosphere, all life got through them, otherwise you wouldn't be here to talk about it. And interestingly, some of those past revolutionary changes of the planet are ones we kind of owe our existence to because they involved uh, major rises in oxygen in the atmosphere, creating an atmosphere we could breathe. But they often also involved absolutely tumultuous climate changes and um I don't think we'd be wise to, to sort of vote for going through uh one of those incredible sort of convulsions of the planet. It would be a very, very risky place to be. And that's, I guess, the kind of risks I'm trying to articulate with this latest paper. But I believe that there's still the opportunity to build, create, make a much better, brighter, more, more sustainable future, which is obviously got to be powered by sustainable energy sources, and it's got to be based on recycling all the materials we need to make new stuff out of the old stuff we have, just as the biosphere does. And I, I guess um, that's the kind of stark or interesting choice we've presented ourselves with now. I don't think anyone would want to voluntarily go for the climate apocalypse, but if we don't change the trajectory we're on I'm afraid that's where we're heading and yeah my other work is about saying okay we're not going to retreat either I don't think in the sense of we're not going to lower global energy consumption there's no sign of that so instead we need a kind of way through this that's towards a sustainable energy material recycling flourishing future for people that, that doesn't wreck the planet
1: Well, uh, we'll get back to that. I want to ask you also, early in your academic life, you were inspired by the Gaia hypothesis from Britain's James Lovelock. Uh, What are your thoughts about Gaia these days?
0: Well, I'm still inspired by Jim Lovelock, and I uh, helped him celebrate his 100th birthday just earlier on this year in the summer um, and put on a conference to mark the occasion and to to remind people to think in this in this way about our planet and our predicament. Because I think Lovelock gave us a new worldview, a new sense of our, our place in the world where other living things are an essential part of our life support system. We're all entwined together in this complex medley of feedback loops, as we call it. Um, and I guess my thinking on Gaia now is humans collectively, we're all becoming aware of our, the global planetary consequences of our actions. And I think that's something new in Gaia. I don't think we'd say that any other species has had a collective awareness of the impact it was having on the whole world, even though other species like dolphins are clearly conscious. And what that offers for humans is the slim but nevertheless uh, viable possibility that we can use our collective self-awareness to to make some decisions to change the way we're acting with respect to the planet. And, of course, that's the massive debate we're in now that we're talking about with regard to the Anthropocene. Are we going to change our ways because we use a bit of our foresight, if we have it, to say, well, carrying on the way we're going is, is going to end in disaster, so let's do things... Let's preemptively change and do things differently. And for me, I call that Gaia 2.0. If humans could add a little bit of collective self-awareness to the Earth's self-regulation, then it would be adding a new kind of feedback loop into the into Gaia or the Earth system. One in which there was an element of conscious self-awareness and all the kind of sensing with satellites and other instruments that the business of some humans or scientists are involved in, we're involved in sensing how we're changing the world and feeding that information back to the society in the, in the hope, possibly the vain hope, that, that, that we're we beginning to collectively respond to that. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: I think that's beautiful. This is Radio Shock with Alex Smith. Our guest is Professor Tim Lenton from the University of Exeter. We're talking about the grave risk of tipping points or even slipping into a greenhouse world. In your new article in Nature, you reference a key paper, Cascading Regime Shifts Within and Across Scales, that was led by Juan Roca from Stockholm Resilience Centre. How does that relate to your comment in Nature?
0: Well, very good question, Alex. That's What that is, is a really nice study that asked the question, well, we can see all of these possible tipping points in systems in different scales, like ecosystems, bits of the climate, what are now being called social ecological systems, like agricultural systems. Um, That paper asked, well, can we see evidence that those tipping points, or they call them regime shifts in those systems, can interact across different types of systems and across different scales of space in particular, but also time. And they rightly identified that if you have big-scale tipping in something like the climate, then perhaps not surprisingly, that can trigger tipping down at smaller scales in ecosystems And they, uh, of course, also hinted that uh, big-scale tipping in the climate might cause some tipping points or disruption in social systems. What's also worth thinking about is can we have, perhaps only occasionally, but can we have cases where tipping at smaller scales cascades upwards to affect things at larger scales? And that could be a bad kind of tipping, but I'm also really interested in how do we now tip what I'd call positive change in social systems to avoid the uh, bad climate tipping points? So I've taken their kind of thinking, and now I'm trying to work out, okay, where can we identify positive tipping points between humans and technology or forms of governance or or whatever that are going to help us get onto a new sustainable trajectory? And also, how might we take specific systems like a an ecosystem like a coral reef that might have been degraded into an undesirable state, how might we be able to tip that back into a better state with some interventions? Because I think we're going to have to do some of that to uh, make things better again.
1: And then there's a paper published in PNAS in 2008, and it showed systems can appear to reach an equilibrium just before they break into a significant change of state. You and your co-author Chris Bolton wrote about that in 2015. I interviewed Chris on Radio Ecoshock. So that's really another trap. Things can look very stable, uh, just nice and calm, and then they shift radically and they never go back. That makes it hard to communicate the risks. I mean, it seems like everything's going okay right now, but it could turn bad quickly.
0: I know there's a certain irony in the fact that that a complex system can actually become more sluggish in response to all the nudges it's getting from the world before it undergoes a really dramatic tipping point kind of change. It can be made to seem intuitive if it's possible to understand that any system with these different stable states has these mechanisms that we call feedbacks, that by definition, if it has a stable state, try to drag it back to whatever that preferred state is. But when we're seeing a system heading towards a tipping point, we're essentially seeing those stabilizing mechanisms starting to break down and get weaker. And that's why, as you're heading towards a tipping point, when you nudge a system, it actually recovers more slowly from the nudges you're giving it. And that's a signal we've successfully looked for in some past cases of approaches to abrupt climate change, for example. But it is, like all of this science of complex systems and ones involving the biosphere as well, it is inherently um, sometimes a little counterintuitive and interesting how, how these things behave. And that's, that's, I guess, how people like me can, can make their living, spending 25 years of their life trying to, trying to grapple with this sometimes unintuitive complexity and then try and explain it to everybody else.
1: Well, it's amazing that apes can get into their brains how the whole universe works and or even try to do something like that, but we do.
0: We do, yeah. Yeah.
1: How big, Tim, do you think our remaining carbon budget is before we cross tipping points?
0: Well, I fear that we might have crossed one or two in the ice sheets, and we're just not absolutely sure about that because it's not super easy to observe the slow dynamics unfolding in inhospitable places of the world, like around the edges of Antarctica. So we might have uh, we might be at, at a tipping point for some triggering some slow ice sheet losses. I hope we're not. But if we if that's not the case, I think we're really um, running into dangerous territory if we're going towards one and a half degrees of global warming from the current one degree in a bit in centigrade that is. And the remaining budget to stay within, to try and limit the warming to one and a half degrees, it's maybe around 400, possibly 500 billion tons of CO2. But that budget's probably being eaten away at by the fact that we're triggering some tipping point loss of carbon and the form of carbon dioxide and methane from permafrost. So the budget might well be down to 400, 300 billion tons of CO2. And we're still emitting over 40 billion tons of CO2 per year at the moment, collectively. So simple maths would suggest we're only about a decade away from expending the the carbon budget for one and a half degrees. So we may be heading into the danger zone, uh, like it or not, in some sense. But uh, there's still an extremely strong incentive to try to... Uh, limit warming as much as we can, because the more you warm it up, the more you risk tipping other bits of the climate system.
1: What have you heard, Tim, about the latest climate models for the sixth IPCC report due out in 2021?
0: Well, I've been having a little bit of a look at this, Alex, uh, because the groups, the major modelling groups, have started to return some of their runs, as they're called, the models into the, the database that we can all access. And the worrying thing that's happened is a kind of large-scale property of these models that we use to measure, we call it the climate sensitivity, the how much warmer does it get if you double the CO2 level in the model. Well, the climate sensitivity of several of the models that have returned recently has jumped up gone from what used to be most of the models clustered around about 3 degrees centigrade warming for doubling CO2. Some of them have jumped up to 5 degrees centigrade or more warming for the same, for exactly the same change in CO2. And the reason they've done this is because the models have been nominally improved on the basis of some observations. So in simple terms, some satellite observations of clouds have, have taught climate modelers that they'd... Parameterize their models a little bit wrongly. They put too many ice crystals in the clouds of their models. And when you adjust that, the unfortunate consequences is you take away one of the big damping mechanisms that counteracts warming in the models. Because in the model world and in the real world, when you melt a ice crystals and clouds and you turn them into lots of small water droplets, that actually makes the clouds more reflective and tends to cool the. Cool the climate, but we are now saying, "Oh dear, there's not as much ice in the clouds as we thought there was," and that's that's why at least one or two of these models are suddenly showing a lot more warming when we hit them with the same CO2 change. I should also say that those models have some other issues with them. They don't. They might have some other problems. They might be not doing as good a job at capturing the recent observational changes. So those models might be wrong for another reason, and they might be wrong in a better direction. But nevertheless, it's quite concerning at the moment that we suddenly see the possibility that the climate sensitivity is higher than we thought it was, because that just makes the whole story that already sounds bad sound even worse, I'm afraid.
1: Well, like you, I think the rate of change may be the key. It may be the thing that we can control and our our best hope. It would be great if we could slow this shift down enough to allow natural selection and evolution to help transition the species. But at our (laughs) current rate, that doesn't seem like that time will be there. What do you think?
0: Well, certainly not for natural selection in the sense of Based on um, genetics and population genetics, that's generally pretty slow. In the human realm, of course, we have something else which we loosely call cultural evolution. It's clear that humans are evolving far faster than evolution purely based on genetics, and instead, cultural evolution probably took hold thousands of years ago and is is absolutely dominating now. And that what I mean by that is we have these different symbolic forms and language forms in which we communicate information and we sometimes imitate each other's behaviors and we and so on and so forth. So it's we'd like to comfort ourselves, I think, that we're a pretty adaptable species, partly because we have this cultural evolution. But of course it's the same cultural evolution in the form of the Industrial Revolution and everything else that's been driving the problem. So And we can't deny at the same time that we're biological beings and we've got some physiological limits to what we can tolerate. So simple things like uh, temperature tolerance is not going to magically evolve. And we see a real risk in uh, these climate change model scenarios that large parts of the planet start to get to temperatures that become pretty physiologically intolerable in parts of the years in in heat waves for for all mammals, including humans. So yeah, there's some, some basic biological constraints we're not going to evolve our way out of. But maybe there's some hope if if we can perhaps change the way we're culturally evolving. <laughs>
1: We're starting to run out of time. I'm hoping to slip in two quick questions here. The first is that you and your group of respected scientists published this warning in the journal Nature just before the COP25 climate conference in Madrid. We did. You called for action, not words. What is your reaction to COP25? <laughs> I
0: didn't see a lot of action. I saw some more words. So it's it's, it's the ongoing disappointment that many of us feel with the... Uh, governmental and intergovernmental process on climate change. But some of us find comfort in the fact that we see action on climate change bubbling from the bottom up all, all over the world. We see communities mobilizing, cities clubbing together to show each other how they're creating positive change and learn from each other. So whilst the top-down process of kind of intergovernmental governance is failing us, at least the bottom-up is starting to mobilise and get some action going on this problem. We obviously need the top-down and the bottom-up both to be pushing in the same direction, though. So we need, frankly, we've got a deficit of leadership, and we need national nations and an intergovernmental process to show real leadership on this issue, to put some human skin in the game, I think, and for some true leaders to step up. And we just have a deficit of that at the moment, in my honest you. And where
1: does your work go from here, Tim?
0: Well, I would really like to focus a bit more of my energy on how can we tip positive change to avoid the really bad climate tipping points. I think the problem for someone like me, I trained as a scientist, uh, as an environmental scientist, is we're so used to diagnosing the problem, and we're getting spectacularly good at diagnosing the problem and telling everybody else about it. But what the world's crying out for now, I think, is probably a roadmap of solutions so and how are we going to transform ourselves into a into a flourishing, sustainable future. So I'm trying to spend some energy now identifying where are the possible positive tipping points to tip that transformation that we know we need to uh, a sustainable future. Where, where can we find those and how might we activate them? I have to say I'm having to learn a lot along the way, but that's, that's the joy of being an academic, is you, you get a kick out of learning new things and thinking about new problems.
1: We have been speaking with UK professor and director of Global Systems Institute at Exeter, Dr. Tim Lenton. The paper Climate Tipping Points Too Risky to Bet Against is available free. You could just Google that or you can look in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your time with us.
0: Well, thanks for the insightful questions and getting me onto all the interesting territory. That was great.
1: I'm Alex Smith. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. The frozen Earth has now joined humans as a driver of warming. New science discovers greenhouse gases leaking from the permafrost during winter are already greater than carbon captured by plants in the polar summer. Could emissions from the Arctic help push climate beyond human tolerance? A new study says that on our current path, if we don't do anything, by the end of the century, those greenhouse gases coming up from the winter permafrost lands will increase by 41%. The lead author is American permafrost expert Susan M. Natali. Dr. Natali is Associate Scientist and Arctic Program Director at the Woods Hole Research Center. The study was supported by NASA's Arctic Boreal Vulnerability Experiment, also known as ABOVE. From Massachusetts, Susan Natale, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: We should start with a real basic for our listeners. Where is the permafrost found?
2: So, uh, much of the permafrost is that we're talking about in the study is in the northern hemisphere. Permafrost underlies about... of the Northern Hemisphere land area, but there's also permafrost in the Tibetan Plateau and permafrost in Antarctica as well, and in other mountain regions.
1: And I thought that the breakdown into carbon gases stopped when things froze. And what do we know now?
2: Right. So what we know is that microbes are still active in frozen soils and their scientists have been studying this for a number of years, but it's really challenging to get measurements from the Arctic when the ground is frozen. And so we've never really been able to get an idea of just how much carbon is coming out from these frozen soils. So, what we did in this study is we synthesized all of the data that are available um, to ask this question, you know is this is this a substantial number? and what does this mean in terms of the carbon balance?
1: If we select a nice cold spot in Alaska in the permafrost zone, would that place still give off measurable greenhouse gases in January, even though it was covered by, say, six feet of snow on the ground? Is that possible?
2: That's definitely possible. And the snow actually helps to keep the soils warm. So the air temperatures might be, say, you know, minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, but the soil temperatures can be quite a bit warmer because the snow acts as an insulator against these really cold air temperatures. Now, even when the ground and the soils are, say, minus 5 degrees Celsius, um, even when they're below the freezing point, water can stay unfrozen in a film around soil particles, and it's this thin, unfrozen water film where microbial activity is continuing even when the temperatures are really cold.
1: But how do the greenhouse gases get up through all that snow? There's pores
2: in the snow, and sometimes we'll see a pulse of emissions. Say in spring, if, there's, if the ground is very th- covered with a thick ice, you can see this pulse. So some of it will be built up under, in the soils and then be released in the spring. Others can just work their, their way out because the snow is gas permeable.
1: The title of the new paper published in Nature Climate Change is Large Loss of CO2 in Winter Observed Across the Northern Permafrost Region. There are 75 authors. Susan, why so many experts for this paper? This
2: study we compiled, we we wanted to get all of the data that were out there existing for the winter. So as I said, there's a number of reasons why it's really challenging to get to measure carbon fluxes in the winter from the Arctic. So it's very cold, and people aren't working up there as much, and instrumentation breaks, and we don't have information from remote sensing satellites that we might have during the growing season. So... There have been studies, and we wanted to compile all of the information that was published as well as some information that has yet to be published yet. So a lot of the authors on here, some of them provided different data sets. Some of them provided data from models. Others helped with data analysis. So a lot of the work of this paper was bringing in this group of scientists um, and putting together that the knowledge that we currently have available to us into this one study.
1: This is almost like a permafrost summit.
2: It is like a permafrost summit. Well, this project actually started at the Permafrost Carbon Network meeting, and the Permafrost Carbon Network is a group of international scientists who get together and we meet at least annually, and sometimes there's subgroups that meet more frequently, with the goal of trying to synthesize the current knowledge about carbon emissions and carbon cycling in the permafrost region. So this came out of one of those meetings.
1: How good is the data and cooperation from the largest single shareholder in the permafrost club, Russia?
2: The data that we get from Russian colleagues is very good. It is sometimes harder to get data from other countries than it is from getting, say, data from scientists within the U.S., because in the U.S., there's, um, the culture is that scientists make their data freely available. You know, we, we upload it, and that's not always the case in other countries, but I will say when... We have a number of Russian collaborators on as co-authors and, you know, working with Russian collaborators is as working with a collaborator in in another country. One of the challenges with Russia, though, is most of the permafrost is in Russia and there are a lot of data gaps. If you look at the map that we have in the paper with just, you know, the dots showing where we have a data point, there most of the gaps are in Russia. It's a really remote region. It's difficult to access and we just don't have the data coverage that we have, say, in the United States.
1: Well, Canada is another big holder, and we have some great permafrost scientists. I've interviewed them here on Radio EcoShock, but the funding for them, the support, was cut by a previous regime. Do you think there's enough data coming in from Canada?
2: Um, there's also a lot of data gaps in Canada, especially in the more northern regions of Canada. And, you know, the the issue of funding is is a big issue, even in the U.S. You know, funding cycles are... You get a grant from the government, it's a three-year funding cycle, you set up instrumentation to start these measurements, and then the funding ends, and it's, and it's really challenging to support. So, to me, this sort of continuous funding for long-term monitoring of the Arctic is really critical because we have a lot of data gaps spatially because it's hard to access many of these sites, but we also have a lot of temporal data gaps that sites go online and start collecting data, and then they, and then they drop out because of funding gaps.
1: Could you explain, please, the relationship between the total winter emissions from permafrost and that carbon sink provided by plants in the Arctic growing season, you know, spring, summer, and early fall? How how does that balance now work out?
2: Yeah, so, you know, we focused this study on the winter season because we recognize this is where the biggest data gap, and we felt that the models weren't Properly representing the winter season fluxes. And so, from this data synthesis and this effort to upscale these numbers across the Panarctic region, we estimated that there's currently 1,662 teragrams of carbon being released from the permafrost region each year. In this study, we Incorporated carbon emissions during the growing season that came out of process models. So we have two different methods of doing this. So we used a, a, a data model, and then we compare this to some process models. And so the process models estimated about one thousand teragrams of carbon were being taken up from the growing season. So combining these two numbers suggests that the, car- the Arctic is currently maybe a carbon source, and. There's not, you know, I'm giving you an individual number, but there is a lot of uncertainty around these numbers. So I guess I, I think the most important thing is not the... St- the, the specific number itself is important, but it's also important to recognize that this has been a system that has been a sink for tens of thousands of years. And at individual site levels where people have been monitoring carbon emissions, at regional scales where people are measuring carbon in the atmosphere, say, with with airborne airplane measurements, and at this with this panarctic synthesis, all signs are showing that this is starting to change that no longer is this a large carbon sink. It's been a carbon sink, which is why there's so much carbon in permafrost, but we may now be shifting to a carbon source. And, you know, the, I'm sure you've heard and your listeners heard to this greening of the Arctic. So there have been observations um, and expectations that the Arctic is getting greener in the summertime. So shrubs are growing much larger. Um, we may expect tree lines to advance. And so there, these when these Plants grow bigger, they're storing carbon in their biomass. So, some of the there there may be additional carbon uptake by plants in the Arctic, like that's certainly expected. The concern is that there's just so much carbon below ground stored in permafrost that will the plants be able to keep up? And this study is showing that they may not be keeping up right now.
1: And it's hard for us to understand what these numbers mean. I mean, I think a teragram is a billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. I I hope I have that right. Uh, And and that could grow at worst-case scenario by 41% by the end of the century if we just keep business as usual. It's hard for us to understand how large that is relative to other sources like the amount coming out of our tailpipes of our cars or our changes in agriculture. And has anybody made those comparisons? Do we know how big this amount coming from the Arctic permafrost in winter is?
2: Right. So Petagram is a billion ton, and a teragram is a million ton. They're both very large numbers. Um, and the amount that comes out from a tailpipe of a car, um, I think, is about one point two tons of carbon per year for an average driver in the U.S. So um, this is quite a bit more than than drive. You know, think about removing that many cars, and that would be a substantial impact on the U.S. fossil fuel emissions.
1: Just the discovery of winter emissions in the far north sounds very serious for our climate. Have those gases been included in projections by governments and the IPCC and and climate modelers?
2: Um, I think what the problem with some of the models is that they're not representing carbon emissions in the winter properly, such that they're essentially shutting down too early. And by that I mean at temperatures that are, you know, shutting down at temperatures that are zero degrees Celsius, minus five degrees Celsius. But what we're seeing is that the microbes are continuing to be active at temperatures down to minus 10 degrees Celsius, minus 15 degrees Celsius. And so they're underrepresenting the carbon emissions that can be produced from microbes breaking down organic matter during this winter period.
1: And how do you think continuing climate change will affect the loss of CO2 and methane from permafrost regions during the Arctic winter period that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, so one of the, you know, the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and a lot of that warming is happening in the winter. So there's amplified warming in the Arctic in the fall, in the winter, in the spring. And so we're seeing this extended period um, in the fall when the ground was frozen, and now it's not freezing, you know, I you know one site where I'm monitoring ground temperatures it had been you know we had seen it freezing freezing in, uh, until about October and now we're seeing it staying at 0 degrees Celsius until January so because much of the warming is happening in the winter and this is a time period when plants are not taking up carbon this is one of the concerns is that the warming in the arctic may you know, happen more in the winter. This is a time when microbes are active and plants are not. So this potential for plant to offset these carbon emissions during the wintertime may not be as great as they would be if the warming was so, say, equal throughout the year.
1: You know, there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, in the northern hemisphere during the winter and less in the summer, and we're told that's because of the inhalation of CO2 by plants and the soil in the growing season, and then that comes back to the atmosphere in the fall. But I wonder, is it possible in the future that winter CO2 levels will be even higher in the Northern Hemisphere, boosted by these emissions we're talking about from the permafrost?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what we expect, expect based on this study. Um, Also, patterns of the seasonal amplitude, so the difference between the summer and the winter number across the planet, that seasonal amplitude has been increasing in Arctic regions. So, plants are, yes, taking up more during the summer, and then there's also additional losses during the winter. And so, we expect those winter losses to be amplified.
1: This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. We're lucky to have as our guest Dr. Sue Natalie, Arctic Program Director at the well-known Woods Hole Research Center. So I think, Sue, that we'll need a combination of genius and public will and luck to limit warming to 4.5 degrees over pre-industrial times. But if we do keep to that lower formula proposed by the United Nations, what happens to emissions from permafrost by the year 2100, according to your new study?
2: Right. So in this study, we estimated emissions from the permafrost regions during the winter at two different emission scenarios, so 4.5 and 8.5. And 8.5 is sometimes referred to as business as usual. So this is a very, very high warming scenario. I mean, even 4.5 is taking us above 2 degrees Celsius. And so, when we compare the carbon emissions during the winter, say, if we kept our climate as it was now to how much would come out under, you know, this 4.5, RCP 4.5, we expect to see about 15 petagrams, so 15 billion tons additional carbon coming out under 4.5 and 27 petagrams under 8.5. So, um, this is a substantial boost in the amount of carbon that's coming out from the Arctic during these winter seasons. And you know some of that carbon when we when we talk about carbon emissions from the Arctic, we talk a lot about um, permafrost thaw and permafrost thaw is really important because that's where most of the carbon is stored. But there's also a lot of carbon in the ground that's above the permafrost that freezes and thaws on an annual basis. And so some of this carbon that we're talking about coming out maybe because, Permafrost has thawed and the carbon's been moved into the biologically cycling pool, but a lot of it is also just coming out because the grounds aren't freezing and aren't getting as cold as they were um, previously.
1: And there have been worries by some about large quantities of methane rising from shallow Arctic seas as they warm. Do you share that concern about clathrates, as they're called, and, and how does that compare to methane expected from thawing permafrost right on the land?
2: Yeah, so um, just one, one thing about methane and methane during the winter. And this study, I should say, didn't incorporate methane emissions during the winter. And there have been other studies that have also showed, you know, that methane is also being produced during the winter. And I think this is something, um, you know, we expect the methanogens who are producing the methane, I, you know, to sh- sort of essentially shut down in these low temperatures, but they're not. So they're remaining active also. And so that's a really important additional sor- source terrestrially. It's it's hard to say, um, to put a number on the methane emissions from these clathrates or methane hydrates, how much is going to change. I don't own the number for that. I mean, some studies show the number is quite high, and then others are showing that, yes, the methane is coming out, but it's being turned into carbon dioxide before it's making its way into the atmosphere. So I would say that's still an unknown or an uncertainty for sure.
1: And something in your earlier work also surprised me. I thought if thin soils of the tundra dried out, they would emit less carbon dioxide and less methane. What did you actually find?
2: Yeah, this is, you know, in the winter and in the summer, the one big challenge of knowing what's going to happen as climate changes in the Arctic is that when permafrost thaws, the ground sometimes gets wetter and the ground sometimes gets drier. And it gets wetter when you have the ground can collapse because the ice that's in the permafrost melts. So you get the the sort of subsidence area and that can collect water. It can also get drier if the permafrost completely breaches and you're in an area that has good drainage. So if you think of um, like a bottom of a swimming pool that has a crack in it, then you can have it drain out. And so these two different conditions will determine whether the carbon will come out primarily as carbon dioxide or methane. When you have this condition of drying, the microbes microbial like decomposition is faster in these slightly drier soils of the art when the arctic dries and so you get more carbon dioxide coming out however when you have areas when the ground gets wetter you have more methane coming out and even though the absolute rates of methane emissions are lower methane is really important because it's more potent and more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is so so it's kind of a, it's it's a, in some ways a no-win situation, right? Because if it gets drier, then you can, the microbes act faster, even though it's coming out as CO2. But when it's wetter, um, we get this methane emissions.
1: Earlier permafrost science, including a 2015 paper you co-authored, suggested, quote, a gradual and prolonged release of greenhouse gas emissions, end quote, from the north, Do you still think it will be gradual, and are there factors which might speed up the process or even provide surprising bursts of emissions from the far north?
2: Right. So, you know, just a comment on the word gradual. Gradual is relative. So if we think about the tens of thousands of years that it took for the carbon to be locked away in permafrost, you know, in that study we estimated about 10% of the carbon in permafrost may be lost by 2100. That's actually quite fast relative to the time frame it took to take up the permafrost. And if we look at that number, so it's not an explosion that it's all going to be released at once, but it still is a substantial amount of carbon projected to go into the atmosphere. So, so that's, you know, like, it, yes, it is gradual, but it's not meaningless. And there are a number of processes that I think are really important that can speed that up. Um, one very important one is um, people call abrupt permafrost thaw or sometimes they'll refer to it as a thermokarst. And this is what happens because the permafrost contains ice and it contains different amounts of ice and different types of ice. When the permafrost thaws and this ice melts, the ground can collapse. And what that does is it allows the thaw to happen very very quickly, you know a lot of, with the the way the models see permafrost thaw or depict permafrost thaw as this top down process. So you have air warming and then the heat gets transferred down through the soil. But when abrupt thaw happens, you rather than have this gradual process, you can have meters to tens of meters thawing in a single year. So I think that's a process that will. Um, we can expect to see greatly speeding things up. And actually, you know, recent studies have shown that the rate of permafrost in some regions is quite a bit faster than had been projected, largely because of these abrupt processes. The other thing that's happening that I think can cause the abrupt process in, in speed of permafrost is that we have been having these extreme events. So, you know, it's not just the average temperature increase in the Arctic, but when you get these, you know, heat waves in the summer or we've had a couple of really, really warm winters, those can trigger this kind of abrupt thaw. The final thing is, you know, another thing is fire. So fire frequency and intensity has been increasing in areas that are underlain by permafrost. And fire in the Arctic doesn't just burn the trees. It burns the organic material and it burns the soil. That results in a pulse of carbon to be released. But by removing that organic material, it also makes the permafrost more vulnerable because that organic material is like... Um, acts as an insulation. So it's like opening up the top of a cooler. And then you combine that with these extreme summer warming events and you get thawing happening much faster than would have been predicted if you just are thinking about this top down, you know, transfer of heat into the soil.
1: I really appreciate your explaining that because I, I didn't really understand it before that. So they say think globally, act locally. Susan Natalie, would you tell us about your climate activism with the legislature in your native Massachusetts?
2: One of the challenges about being a permafrost scientist is that there's not an action you can take on the ground once the permafrost thaws. So this is a global problem because the global warming air temperatures is causing the permafrost thaw, which will cause the carbon to be released. But at the same time, if we reduce our fossil emissions, fossil fuel emissions to other parts of the planet, this can also help reduce the amount of permafrost that thaws and reduce the amount of carbon emissions that will be removed from permafrost. So a lot of the work that I do, I try to get this information out locally through, you know, talk to the Massachusetts legislature. Um, I did a briefing on Congress. I went to... The cop um, in Spain, and so getting this word out about reducing fossil fuel emissions and letting people know that, yes, there's additional emissions that may come out that currently are not accounted for in many of our global climate models that are coming from the permafrost region. And I try to get the message across that this is this is an additional problem that we're not thinking about, but in some ways it's also an additional solution. So each our reduction of fossil fuels in other parts of the planet will also reduce the amount of carbon that's coming out of permafrost. So the more permafrost we save the less that will go into the atmosphere.
1: It's interesting you say that. I was going to ask you, well, what can we do to slow down the thawing of the permafrost? And the answer is get our act together locally.
2: Yeah, you know, and that goes from the voting and reducing your personal carbon footprint and communicating this to policymakers. All of these are are really important steps. A, A lot of folks have asked about ways, I guess, to sort of physically protect the permafrost, you know, put something on top of it to reflect it. And, you know, realistically, the Arctic is a, is a large place. And it's, to me, it's a lot more feasible and seems easier to reduce global fossil fuel emissions than to do some sort of geoengineering uh, on the Arctic permafrost. As difficult as it seems to get the international community to reduce fossil fuel emissions, that will go a long way in protecting the permafrost. That's important for the people who live in the Arctic and also for everyone globally.
1: What did you bring back from COP25? I was pretty disappointed in it, but what were your feelings?
2: Um, I was also disappointed in it, and it's, you know, it's a challenge because there's these two groups there. There's sort of the, you know, a group of scientists who are communicating this and some policymakers who are very, you know, feel strong about making efforts to increase ambition and a lot of, you know, activist groups. But then at the same time, the outcome was somewhat disappointing In a lot of ways, I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I couldn't be able to continue doing the work that I do. So I still think it's it's a a step forward that the international community is still getting together and having these conversations. And I do see a lot of changes in my community. And I think a lot of this just comes out of this increased awareness and increased emphasis at the state level, um, at the city level, at the individual level.
1: And as we wrap up here, what are you working on these days?
2: Well, I'm still working on um, refining models of carbon emissions during the winter time. That's something that I'll work on for a while. But we're also working on doing similar work that we did in this this study for the winter season that we want to um, do this on a year-round basis. So we're synthesizing fluxes from the Arctic and the boreal region, um, and we want to scale this across the Arctic region. And the goal is to have some sort of framework where we can have an annual update of what is the state of the Carbon fluxes in the Arctic, based on data that is coming out of the Arctic, so that's um, that's a work in progress right now, and uh, you should be seeing more on that coming out soon.
1: Does that data have to come from local research stations, or is it also being coordinated with satellite information? How, How is it working?
2: Yeah, so we're working with a lot of the the data, the carbon flux data, a lot of the data that we're working with on the ground. There are also airborne measurements that we can incorporate into this, but we do use the satellite data. Are really helpful because the on the ground measurements are somewhat patchy. But if we can use these on the ground measurements and sort of develop functional relationships, say, between temperature and carbon dioxide that's released the respiration, we can then extrapolate that to the Panarctic region. So we, u- we do use a lot of these satellite records to look at different land cover types, to look at, you know, soil moisture and how does this relate to the carbon emissions. So those satellite data are essential.
1: We have been speaking about a revolutionary new look at large greenhouse gas emissions coming from the permafrost, unexpected to most of us in winter. Our guest is the lead author, Dr. Susan M. Natale, from the Woods Hole Research Center in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Susan, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us.
2: Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.